Show of hands, how many have been in a bookstore lately? A regular old bookstore, run-of-the-mill bookstore. Have you noticed the amount of self-help books? I mean, everything by a plethora of experts on how to live successfully or correctly. Uh, I was on an airplane the other day and reading a magazine, and there was a little section in this magazine, Red Book magazine, that said, self-help won't help. And uh, the article said, "With or when the going gets tough, even the tough turn to self-help books. Uh, but a few books offer guidance that leaves us scratching our heads. And they outline several new authors with new books uh, for self-help. Uh, to improve your mind, one author suggests, and it's a woman writing to woman, quote, change your ponytail. This is highly significant, ladies. Listen carefully. Change your ponytail. Think about it, says this counselor. You probably never see a woman with a high ponytail who is ready to slit her wrists. To accept your body, Carolyn Hillman, a recent author, tells you to have a conversation with your fat. Are you ready? She says, ask your fat what it does to help you. You already know how it gets in your way and what, uh, uh, what it, you already know how it gets in your way, but ask your fat what positive image it projects. Here's the supposed conversation. The woman should say, fat, what do you do for me? The fat supposedly responding says, I protect you from being sexually harassed by projecting an image that says, I'm big and you better not mess with me. Now, I'm not making this up. I know it sounds ridiculous, but this was in this book. To develop empathy, one Ph.D. advises, quote, become your favorite pet. What might you learn by getting down on all fours and lapping up water with your tongue? Reminds me of a postcard I heard about written by a client to his counselor that said, having a wonderful time, wish you were here to tell me why. Now, when you hear the term counselor, I wonder what flashes through your mind, or counseling, or just the term to counsel. Perhaps you think of a profession of somebody with a beard with some gray in it, because that would connote perhaps a little bit of wisdom, sitting behind a desk stroking it as you tell them your problems. And... Thus, you think that is counseling. It's in that professional genre. Or perhaps you have been tainted by the caricature of somebody like Stuart Smalley, who has now made movies, I hear. At least that is his caricature. And he's the guy who says, look in the mirror and say, I'm good enough, I'm nice enough, and people like me. And, of course, he's kind of made uh, a spoof of all that. Of course, there then is a broader sense of counseling and this morning a more biblical sense of what counseling really is. In fact, there are 90 occurrences of the word counsel in the Bible. Eighty of them are found in the Old Testament. In the book of Proverbs, the word counsel in its different forms appears 16 times and another four times the word counselor appears. And Proverbs has a lot to say about it. Also, we need to recognize that part of the function of God's Holy Spirit is to counsel. I think we're pretty much aware of that. 
In fact, one of his titles is the counselor. Jesus said, I will leave, but I will send you another parakletas, comforter, counselor. Another one like the one I am. In other words, the Holy Spirit will be to the church all that Jesus was to the twelve disciples as a comforter and as a counselor. Now today's title of this message is The Counsel of the Godly. And I have taken my title not from Proverbs 1, but Psalm 1, which says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Which would infer that the blessed man, or the happy man, is someone who takes counsel from those who are godly. And fortunately, Proverbs has a lot to say on the issue. To tell you the truth, I thought today was going to be the last message in Proverbs. I'd close it off with Proverbs 31. And then I recognize that there's this whole section, a theme that emerges from Proverbs, and I have never once broached the subject. And I thought, since we're in Proverbs, I might as well do it. And that's the issue of counseling. You see, Proverbs deals with what do we do when life surrounds us with its problems? What do God's people do when they're in dire straits, need of counsel? By the way, God's people need counseling. But they need the right kind, the counsel of the godly. And we're going to look at that today. What is counseling? Who can counsel? Who's qualified to counsel? What are the benefits of godly counseling? These and other things we want to look at this week and perhaps next week. First of all, what is counseling? I've had you turn to Proverbs 1. That's where we started the book. And uh, once again, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning. A man of understanding will attain wise counsel. And we want to do that, don't we? We want to attain wise counsel. Well, that's the first occurrence of counsel in Proverbs. Then we read down a little bit and we find down in verse 25, Wisdom is personified and speaks to the reader, Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I will also laugh at your calamity. And then down in verse 30, They would have none of my counsel. So we see this term used in Proverbs enough to ask, What exactly is counseling? What does it mean exactly? Let's for a minute push aside all of the secular meaning, all of the meaning societally, and figure out what the Bible means when it uses the term counseling. Now, listen, I could define every occurrence of it in the Bible, and we'd be here for about a year and a half. So I'm going to confine this to the book of Proverbs, and I'll elucidate a little further on it next week. But In the book of Proverbs, there are a few different terms that are used, and they all paint a different kind of picture of counseling. The first term that is used is the Hebrew word aitzah. It's the most common word in Proverbs, aitzah. That's the Hebrew word. It means to advise, consult, or to resolve things like a conflict. It is related to another word in its different form, ya'atz, which is a counselor. It's a noun, a counselor. It's also used in Proverbs four times. One who advises, gives counsel, one who consults, or one who deliberates. It is this term that is used more times than any other time in a professional sense in the Old Testament. 
It is used of people who perform a professional function to things like a king or a leader. Uh, Jethro was said to counsel Moses in Exodus 18, the very first occurrence in the Bible of the word counsel is when Jethro the Midianite came to Moses, his son-in-law, and he said, I'm going to give you counsel, and God will be with you. The counselor, in this sense, was someone who would stand before a leader or before a king and, and give advice to someone who was responsible for making a decision. Things about war, things about law. The counselor would advise someone who was responsible to make a decision. In 2 Samuel 16, there's the counsel of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a professional counselor to some of the kings of Israel, David and Solomon. Then over in 1 Kings chapter 12, Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon, wanted to know what decision to make in terms of taxing the people. And so he asked two different groups. One, the elders of Solomon, those wise men who had walked in the footsteps before him. And he said, give me your advice. It's the same term, that professional counsel. They gave him the counsel. He didn't like it. So he turned to the young men, these upstarts who really didn't know much, but they had their own idea of what happened, and basically they ruined the kingdom. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22, it says, Without counsel... The people go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, ya'ats is the term, these professionals, they are established. So first of all, we get a picture of somebody whose duty it is to give good advice in a professional setting. But there are other terms. Also used in the proverb I just quoted, that is Proverbs 15.22, where it says, without counsel. The people or plans will go awry. That word is kaud in Hebrew, and it means an intimate form of counseling, a confidential counseling, a one-on-one, not done in a professional setting in the courts of a king, but just in secret, like a friend would do. Proverbs 3.32 says, God's secret kaud or counsel is with the upright. This is much less formal than the first meaning of the word. It's at a personal level. There's a third usage of the term counsel in the book of Proverbs, and that is found right here in chapter 1, verse 5, the verse we just read, where it says, A wise man will hear and increase learning. A man of understanding will attain wise counsel. Now, this word is interesting. It's the Hebrew word tachbulah. You don't have to remember that term, but let me tell you what it means. In its origin, it means to manage something with a rope. It means to direct or steer something by putting a rope around it. The idea was you put a rope around a stubborn animal and you lead, you direct that animal to the desired location by pulling, tugging on the rope. Sometimes counseling is in a professional setting. It's in a formal come into the office, cross the desk, stroke the chin, give advice. Other times it's personal, over the fence, friendly, intimate. Close, personal, something that friends would do. At other times, it is a little more stringent. It's a little more accountable. It means giving specific direction and kind of tugging on that person, setting strict parameters because of a lifestyle that has been lived. So here's the definition then in the Bible and specifically the book of Proverbs for counseling. Counseling means one person 
helping another person, formally, informally, or by tugging on that person, getting that person to recognize the problem and using God's resources to resolve it. One person helping another person, formally, informally, or by tugging on them. That could mean confrontation. Getting them to see their problem and then resolve the problem using God's resources. Now that's what counseling is. Looking at what counseling is not, and yet it is practiced this way many times, people get the idea that counseling means I will go from person to person to person to person until I find someone who agrees with me, smiles, pats me on the back, and makes me feel good about my condition. That is not counseling. You say, yeah, but the Bible says in the multitude of counselors there's safety. The term there, multitude of counselors, it's those professional counselors who would all at one setting stand before a king and give consensus. Some people will say, well, I went to that counselor, but I didn't like him because he never really helped me. Well, it could be, but it could also be translated in some cases to mean, I went to that guy and he didn't tell me what I wanted to hear, so I'm going to take my football and go home. That is not counsel. In fact, Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool has no delight in understanding, only in expressing his own heart. That's a lot of counseling sessions. Let me just vent here and express my heart. Don't tell me truth or how to change. I just want to vent. The Bible says that is foolish. So that's what counseling is. The next question I would have is, looking at the biblical definition, who's qualified to do it? If counseling is formal or informal, sometimes intimate, sometimes tugging, confrontive, who's qualified to counsel? Well, if you look at it from a biblical perspective, ever since the New Testament times, ever since the church was developed and Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, Christians, as a normal and natural part of church life, counseled each other. Here's the answer. Who's qualified? Christians are qualified to counsel. You say, well, you mean just a few Christians, right? Certain Christians, like perhaps yourself, ministers. No, all believers are qualified to counsel in some regard. Some in a formal setting because of their training. Others in an informal, over-the-fence, friendship-type atmosphere. Others in a loving, friendly, but confrontive manner. But it's a command given to all Christians. You say, I'm not so sure about that. Well, let me clear up the issue by just giving you a few scriptures to consider. Romans 15.14 says, admonish one another. Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, therefore comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another, build up one another. James 5.16, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, all of these scriptures that I just shared apply to whom? One another, right? You do this to one another. It applies to the rank and file believer, the common Christian, not some priestly caste of experts who have to go through some system and get some degree, but all believers. In fact, counseling is a result of maturity, the Bible tells us. The more you grow in Christ and the more you have God's resources, the more you will be able to teach others what you've learned. 
That's a function of growing in Christ. You learn, you take notes, you assimilate it, it gets in your heart, and then you share it with other people. It makes you qualified because it's God's truth. Now, let me put that in perspective. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. See how that works? As the word of Christ dwells richly in you, you admonish and share with one another. Now, let me say, because I'm going to get into some sticky territory here, and uh, it's a little bit controversial perhaps, not that I care about that, but I'll just preface it by saying, I respect the professional community. I respect all of the help of those trained individuals who have helped people in counseling, especially those that have biochemical, organically rooted problems, who can then add some medical relief to those problems. But I want to say that Christians, because of our resources, which I'll explain in a minute, are uniquely qualified to counsel. Yet, I feel that many Christians... Rather than seeing themselves qualified, equipped by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and all the other resources to do it, sort of have bowed at the altars of Sigmund Freud and B.F. Skinner and Carl Rogers and Jung and these other experts. Let's leave it to the experts. They're able to do it. Certainly Christians are not. And you know what that has done to the church by and large? I see it everywhere I go. We have conditioned Christians with that thinking. And the conditioning is this. People will say, if they won't say it outwardly, they'll feel it. This book, the Bible, isn't enough. It's unsophisticated. It's shallow. It is incomplete and it's unable to help people with the deepest emotional problems that they face. Whenever I catch that sentiment or I read of it, or I hear it from another Christian, I feel like lamenting, like God did as He spoke to the prophet Jeremiah. Looking over His people, He said, My people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken Me, the fountain of living waters. Two, they have dug out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. In trying to deal with the problems of a spiritual man or a woman with all of the agencies of the world apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit, those are cisterns that hold no refreshment whatsoever. Now, I don't want to spend my time talking against a system. I'd rather spend the bulk of my time this morning talking for God's resources so that as Christians you feel, yes, I am qualified to do what God wants me to do. Since the early days of Christianity... There was no problem. I mean, Christians saw there's a problem. Okay, we've got God's Word. We've got the Holy Spirit. We've got all these things. Let's do it. In fact, the Puritans had a term for counseling. You know what they called it? The cure of souls. Isn't that a beautiful term? The cure of souls. That is, I'm going to help a person resolve his or her conflict with God's resources. The cure of souls. In fact, you know what the term psychology means? The study of the soul. Now, the soul is God's territory. It's God's business. God created us. And God knows what will make our soul at ease with His resources. Yet many people have sort of capitulated to the worldly system. They say, well, 
There's so much that's beyond the Christian's grasp, and only these experts can help. But listen to this. A Joint Commission on Mental Illness and Health did a national survey. This is their survey, and found that nearly half of all the individuals who need counseling went first to the church. You know what that says? They expected the church to give them God's resources to live. In many cases, the church has said, well, we can't do that. We're not trained to do that. Now listen to this. A research psychiatrist, E. Fuller Torrey, this psychiatrist says, very candidly, that about 5% of those who come to the psychiatrist are those with a true organic brain disease. But 75% of people that come to the psychiatrist are people with problems of living. People that have problems with living. What that means is 75% are coming to know how to live. They need to be educated on how to live. What that tells me is that most people are seeking the kind of advice that the Bible excels in. How to live. How to live rightly. How to please God. Knowing who I am, how I'm made up, the purpose and meaning of life, how to relate to other people. All of these answers, the Bible excels in giving. Who is better equipped then to share that kind of truth with that need than Christian people, than God's people? Moreover, and I'm going to press it a step further, How can somebody separated from God and separated from the Holy Spirit's resources tell me as a believer how I ought to live? That escapes me. God has given us his resources. And it's sad that many counselors, researchers, psychotherapists have been raised to the level of the guru, the expert in living. Yet I would look at their divorce rate, suicide rate, professional burnout rate, and come to an entirely different conclusion. Because I would realize that, again, the soul is God's business, it's God's territory, and it's something that is sacred rather than secular. Moreover, what I would do is I would look at how unbelieving counselors look at life versus how Christians look at life. Do you know they're very different? It's very important to discover what a person thinks about us. If you go to the schools of Freud and the other psychologists, you discover that Freud developed his system as a replacement, essentially, for religion. He was a humanist. His view of life was very mechanistic. And the view of the secular humanist psychologist, I'm saying now apart from Jesus Christ, this world system, is that, number one, humans are basically good, So they deny the depravity of man, the sin of man that needs to be dealt with. Secondly, that we have all the answers we need inside of ourselves. We don't need to go to anything higher than us. It's all in us. Thirdly, our condition stems from our past, not our present. Fourthly, we are victims of what somebody else has done to us in the past. Fifthly, only professionals can solve those problems. And sixthly, the Bible can't do much. Prayer, the Holy Spirit, that's nice. But it's not professional. Now, having said that, it is amazing how these professionals are coming to the same realization that your parents came to by common sense. Yet it's professional all of a sudden. 
example. Let me read this article to you. Aaron was an 11-year-old boy whose behavior was described by Dr. William Glasser, his psychiatrist, as horrible. In his book, Reality Therapy, Glasser says Aaron was the most obnoxious child he had ever met. The boy would kick, scream, run away and hide, become withdrawn, disrupt his classes, make everyone disgusted with him. Dr. Glasser saw one problem with Aaron that no one else had observed. No one ever told him that he was doing wrong. No one had ever set limits on what he could do or not do. The psychiatrist decided to try a completely new tack. The boy would have to behave. Wow. To act reasonably or be punished. This is wrong. Do this or you will be punished. That's his reality therapy. My parents believed in reality therapy. (laughs) Did yours? Uh, He goes on to say he responded remarkably. Glasser said probably because he had been anxious for so long to be treated in a realistic way. Thus he became courteous, well-behaved, and his miserable grades went to straight A's. For the first time in his life, Aaron began to play constructively with other children, to enjoy honest relationships with, with others, to stop blaming his troubles on his mother or other people. Dr. Glasser calls this reality therapy and says, one of an individual's greatest needs is to be made to realize that he is personally responsible for what he does and that right behavior accomplishes more than wrong behavior. Now, let me sum up. Reality therapy includes values as we read this. This is right. This is wrong. Do this, you'll be rewarded. Do that, you'll be punished. It includes values. Where do values come from? And what group of people on earth should have the highest values and be the most equipped to share values than God's people, the Christian church, the church of Jesus Christ? Yet, in many areas, the church is not fulfilling its role. And as I look around and see that the church of Jesus Christ has said, well, we don't have much and we can't do much, but those professionals sure can. It reminds me of the Queen Mary. That's in Long Beach, California. That's that big ship in Long Beach, California that sits at dock. It just floats there. And since 1967, the city of Long Beach has spent 63 million buckaroos to make this thing a museum, a hotel, a little resort for people to come. And yet many people in Long Beach want to get rid of it. They have voices of dissension saying essentially, with no possibility of ever sailing the seas, the Queen Mary serves no real purpose. When I heard that, I thought, hmm, how so much like the church is the Queen Mary. We've got this grand purpose of being able to deal with the soul, the psyche, the innards of man and how we think, how we relate to other people, the meaning of life. That's what we're designed for. But in many cases were of no use. Now, what do we have? I talked all about that we're able to do it, but what what resources do we have? Okay, let's say you don't have a PhD or a master's degree or even a bachelor's degree. Maybe you got a, a GED out of high school. So you think, well, I'm not equipped. Well, let me tell you what you have, all right? This will help a little bit. Number one, you have the Word of God. You've got the textbook on relationships and life. And David said, Thy testimonies, O Lord, are my counselors. Are they your counselors? 
They're awesome counselors. The precepts of Scripture, the Word of God, not written by man, but written by God. We've dealt with that in another study. Secondly, you have prayer. And that's not just mouthing a few words to make you feel good inwardly as you vent. No, you're connecting with God and with God's supernatural resources in prayer. And it works. And the more you pray, the more effective you'll see it work. Thirdly, we have the Holy Spirit. It's a pretty good arsenal, isn't it? He lives inside each one of you who know Jesus Christ personally. He dwells within you. And the Bible calls him the other counselor, the paraclete, the helper, who will help you in times of need. You know, I have noticed that the church is preoccupied with counseling and psychotherapy, but they won't talk much about the Holy Spirit. Whatever happened to the Holy Spirit? Whatever happened to walk in the Spirit, yield to the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit? That's a tremendous resource. That's God's resource. Fourthly, we have the body of Christ. The body of Christ. What what that means is all of us together as members of this body of Christ have gifts of the Holy Spirit. Different gifts that God has given to us to minister to each other, to build each other up. Make us whole. We have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. You get the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit and people working together, and you have tremendous, tremendous resource. However, one Christian psychologist, I quote and unquote that when I say that, asserted, everyone has deep problems rooted in childhood conflicts, and if you don't see a professional analyst regularly, well, your life is almost certainly not what it could be. So you need to see a professional analyst regularly or you'll never be a whole person. So what about all the people in China and India and Africa and South America who don't have professional analysts to see regularly? That is not the gospel. You have God's resources. Now, the Bible has a word for this, and it's not therapy. It's called sanctification. It's a good old Bible word. It means more and more we get changed into the image of Jesus Christ by the Word of God, by the people of God, by the Spirit of God. We get changed in how we think. We get holier as we grow. That's the Bible's word for it. Romans 12, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would just present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. It's the smartest thing you could do. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, listen, by the renewing of your mind. God's Word, the Holy Spirit, God's people prayer renews your thinking. Those are tremendous resources. I think of the words of Peter Marshall who described 20th century Christians as they are like deep sea divers encased in suits designed for many fathoms deep marching bravely forth to pull plugs out of bathtubs. We've got it all. We have everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, Peter said. And yet we're often running around saying, we don't have much. We've got it all that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. The the problem is, is that we haven't tapped into it or availed ourselves to the resources of God in many cases. Now, I want to just follow this a step further, because I've sort of left something open here that I haven't tied up. If counseling means helping one another professionally or individually or by tugging, 
to find the problem, resolve the problem with God-given resources. And if those resources that every Christian has, it's the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, prayer, and the body of Christ, how does this work? How is this supposed to take place? Well, there's three areas the Bible talks about. The large group like this, the small group, Acts chapter 2, and one-on-one, which we see all throughout the Bible. People just meeting together one-on-one. The large group, the small group, and one-on-one. When we meet together like this, we get our cues from this book. That's why we study this book instead of giving opinions or this is how I feel today. We study the Bible. The Bible counsels us. The Bible sets a course for us. And you don't know how many letters I receive continually of how that lesson or that Bible study or this truth awakened my heart, changed my thinking, changed my behavior. Secondly, there are small groups to reinforce the large group. Homes, informal and inviting settings. Because, you know, no matter how biblically sound your church may be, you can only share love in a large group in a general sense, but not in a specific sense, not in a relational sense. That's why you need small groups. That's why the Bible tells us they met together in the temple, then they met from house to house, breaking bread and having fellowship with each other. So we get together in small groups. In fact, I'll tell you my personal experience as a pastor. From 1981 in Albuquerque and a few years before that in California, 90% of the maladies, the problems that men or women face can be successfully dealt with and resolved in a large group Bible study environment and a small group friendship reinforcing those principles kind of an environment. In fact, most of the people that come for one-on-one counseling, though that's valid, and I'll mention that in a minute, we always ask, do you go to a small fellowship? And do you attend and study the Bible regularly and attend fellowship regularly? Most of them say no. They'll say, well, I attend whenever I can, but I'm busy and it's not consistent, or I don't have a small home fellowship to go to. We found that most of the people who do the one-on-one are people who don't do the large group and the small group. Leonard Syme, professor of epidemiology at UC Berkeley, said, The more social ties that we have, the better the health and the lower the death rate. Yet the more isolated a person is, the poorer is the health and the higher is the death rate. God designed us for interaction. The third way is the one-on-one counseling. Now, you know, one-on-one counseling, you're probably, again, thinking of professional and client. One-on-one counseling goes on in all human relationships. We make friends. We talk. We share a gripe, a problem, an issue. And we hear the reflection back. And if you're a Christian, the reflection back will be what the Bible says and what God has shown you personally, that human interaction. The greater the depth of personal friendship and relationship, the less need there is for the professional one-on-one. In fact, in many cases, people will pay a professional to do what a friend should do. It's like almost buying friendship for an hour. Now, I'm not trying to make a blanket statement and say, he said that all. No, I'm just saying that in many cases... It's because that large group interaction isn't there, that small group interaction of building relationships and friendships and having one-on-one close ties isn't there. And uh, a lot of people try to solve their problems with the wisdom of men. I'm cautioning you against that this morning. 
The more you try to resolve your problems with men's resources versus God's, you will simply exalt yourself. You'll talk all about your self-esteem and your self-this and self-that rather than exalting God. It will be egocentric rather than theocentric, and it will always be dangerous in life. Listen to what Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, My speech and my preaching were not with the persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, i got to tell you this, too. Even the psychotherapeutic community, unenlightened in many cases, are the ones looking at the church saying, What are you doing? What are you doing over here? Listen to what one psychotherapist recently confessed. Quote, Psychology has become something of a substitute for the old belief system. Different schools of therapy offer visions of the good life and how to live it. And those whose ancestors once took comfort in the words of God and worshipped at the altars of Christ and Yahweh are now taking solace from and worshipping at the altars of Freud, Jung, Carl Rogers, Albert Ellis, Werner Erhard, and a host of similar authorities. What is counseling? It's one person helping another person, formally, informally, tugging to find out their problems, to solve those problems with God's resources. Who can do it? You can if you have God's resources, and you do if you're a believer, and you don't need to shy away from it. You can help one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, build each other up with powerful, lasting results. Now, I want to close with this question. What good is it? Now, I know that sounds like a dumb question, but a lot of people ask that. Because a lot of people say, well, I don't need it. I don't need counseling. That's for, you know, weird people. What are the benefits of godly counsel? There are several of them, and I'll skim through them as we close. Number one, to live righteously. The first benefit of godly counsel, you will live righteously. Notice I didn't say you will live barely. You'll barely exist. You'll make it through. You will live righteously. There are so many seminars today on how to live successfully, but I don't hear any on how to live righteously. And yet when a person lives in right relationship with God, there is a satisfaction of soul that you can't match with any other system. Proverbs 19.20 tells us, Listen to counsel, receive instruction, that you may be wise in your latter days. Proverbs 13.10, By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Secondly, it will provide safety for you. What I mean is a safety net of accountability. Every now and then I meet the Lone Ranger Christian, the Christian who expresses the sentiment that I just mentioned. I don't need anybody. I'm kind of a loner. I just don't need people around me. I'm a Lone Ranger. Well, as I recall the sitcom, the Lone Ranger had Tonto, did he not? Proverbs 12:15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Proverbs 18.1, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and he rages against all wise judgment. You know, the Bible calls us sheep and sheep do better with other sheep around them, interacting with them. Thirdly, the benefit of godly counsel is to relieve anxiety, which should perk everybody's ears up because this is called the age of anxiety. Proverbs 12.18 tells us the tongue of the wise promotes health 
And down in verse 25 of Proverbs 12, anxiety in the heart of a man causes depression. Many, many people have been there. Causes depression. But a good word can make it glad. You know the doctors and researchers are telling us that stress is more responsible than anything else for the major maladies and life-threatening diseases of our generation. In fact, they call it public enemy number one. In an article I was reading, they said, 25 million Americans have high blood pressure, 1 million more develop it every year, 8 million people have stomach ulcers, 12 million Americans are estimated to be alcoholics, and 230 million prescriptions are filled for tranquilizers every year. That is stress. I'm not saying, here, slap on a Bible verse and boom, instant healing. No. But God's resources, the resources of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, prayer, the body of Christ with all of the gifts, can cause the relieving of anxiety. I know that to be true and many of you as well. Fourthly, it's beneficial for planning correctly. Now, you're not just skating through life without any direction. It'll help you focus your direction. Proverbs 15:22 Without counsel plans go awry but in the multitude of counselors they are established Again Proverbs 19:21 There are many plans in a man's heart nevertheless the Lord's counsel that will stand And the Bible tells us that we ought to wage war by wise counsel Well if kings needed to wage war by counsel how much more should Christians who are in a spiritual battle have godly counsel to wield their swords and their weapons skillfully as God would have us to. Back to the scripture we sort of began with, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Better translation, oh, how happy is the man. And isn't that the result of every good counselor to make that person happy, satisfied in God? Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the way, the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He shall be like the trees planted by the rivers of water, who brings forth his fruit in the season. His leaves shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. That is the life of those who seek godly counsel. Like a tree planted by the rivers of water, they keep growing. You know where the biggest trees in the world are? California. I'm not trying to brag just because I was born there, but I thought they might be somewhere else. I read this. I thought, oh, there's got to be maybe bigger trees in Texas. After all, that's the big state, right? But no, they're in California, northern California to be exact. They're called the sequoias. Uh, Some of the sequoias are, get this, 300 feet high. Now look up for a minute. You see that peak? That's about 35, 37 feet. 300 feet tall. Uh, the biggest one that they have measured in Northern California is 101 feet around. They've been there for 4,000 years, botanists tell us. What that means is that when Jesus was born, that tree that you can see today was over 100 feet tall. There are strong prevailing ocean winds that could cause those sequoias, you would think, maybe to fall, yet they're so big. How do they stay intact? Their root system. What's interesting about the sequoia, the redwood, is that the roots not only go down deep, but their real secret is that their roots intertwine around the roots of the other trees. 
So they're all standing together, never alone. The roots are deep, but they're tied to the other roots. And I think that's a beautiful picture of a believer who seeks the counsel of the godly. Well-rooted believers are tied to each other, admonish one another, encourage and build up one another, confess their sins to one another. And in that relationship, there is great strength in the counsel of the godly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your resources. First of all, your word that is very plain on these issues. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who lives inside of us as another counselor becoming to us what Jesus was to the disciples. May our relationship with that spirit of grace grow deeper as we walk in the spirit or yielded to the spirit, as we are filled with the spirit. Father, I pray that we would look to you, to your resources, bowing at your altar and none others. And then, Lord, may we as the body of Christ reap the benefits of godly counsel. We pray also, Father, for those who might be here who feel an empty void in their life and they've never met you, the fountain of living waters. And we pray, Father, that today they would come into a relationship with you, the giver of life, giver of salvation, and the giver of every good and perfect gift every resource that is needed for right living. In Jesus' name, amen.